Let's see, let me plug myself in there. There we go. How's everybody doing this morning? Good to see everybody. I want to make a quick uh, announcement about something that's happening later this week. Kids World, uh, our Kids World biannual training is happening this Saturday. That's sa this Saturday from 9 a.m. to noon. And so we want everybody to be involved. Everybody who uh, is either already uh, on our team, on the Kids World team, you're one of the volunteers there uh, in, in any aspect, or if you're interested in being a part of Kids World, come this Saturday. We're going to have a delicious breakfast at 9 a.m. We'll start off with that. And uh, so we're going to feed you. There'll be a short informational meeting uh, for new or interested volunteers. Um, there's going to be hands-on training. See, we don't just throw you in there with the kids and say, like, make something up, because that would be terrifying. It, it would be for me, right? Um, we, we train you, and so there's going to be hands-on training, and, and it's a lot of fun going through it um, for all of our current uh, volunteers. Um, there's going to be some fun breakout sessions where we'll get together and, and talk about some different things. So we ask everybody, if, if you're involved in Kids World in, in any way, please attend. There's only two of these a year. We only do two of these years, so it's very, very important. We all get on the same page, same vision, same techniques, and all that good stuff. Because our kids are worth it. Yes. Are they worth it? Yes. Amen. They're, they're worth giving up a few hours on Saturday. So Saturday, 9 a.m. to noon. Um, you can RSVP if you haven't already. Uh, there's a, a VBS booth, because VBS is coming up really soon. There's a, a booth out in the North Foyer, so go out there and let them know. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in coming, and they'll get you signed up. All right. Praise God. Hallelujah. Um, boy, what a beautiful day, right? Man, the weather is, is, is beautiful. We've been blessed. Um, other than the, uh, the, the, the storm a few days ago, which everybody's yards needed, right? Um, the, the yards needed it. We had a slight setback with our... Uh, roof and some water, a, a, a tiny bit uh, collapsing the ceiling. It wasn't, don't be alarmed. Um, it's all cleaned up now. Um, but yeah, it's all under control. But uh, just beautiful weather. It's getting closer to summer. I can tell it's getting closer to summer because I've, I've got two kids who are in school and they're getting antsy, right? Uh, anybody have kids who are kind of getting that, that spirit? Kind of like they're all, they're ready to start summer now. That those last weeks are, are, are very hard, right? Um, this past week, it was, it was kind of cute. My, my oldest, uh, my kids go to two different schools. They're in different grades, so they, and they go to two different schools, and one's like public school, one's private school, and so, so they're kind of on different schedules, and so it, sometimes it kind of confuses things. And so my oldest, he, he's actually out of school this coming Wednesday. It's his last day. So he's just out of his mind. He's so excited. And, um, and this past week, my youngest, my little six-year-old Mason, realized for the first time that Jules is about out of school and he's still got three more weeks. Oh, he was not a happy little camper. And his face, just the heartbreak it, on his little face, tears welling up in his eyes, stomped his foot, said, it's not fair. I'm the littlest and I'm the cutest. <laughs> I thought, that's dangerous. We've got... We've got trouble. Littlest and the cutest. It's hard to argue with that. He is pretty cute, but yeah, so. Anyway, um, lots happening this summer uh, here at Generations Church, and so I'm excited. We've got, um, we've got a couple of, uh, later on this summer, we've got guest ministers coming in. Ivan Tate's going to be here in July, I believe. It's July. Um, Joel Johnson's going to be here in June. He's coming really soon. Um, and today... We are starting a brand new series, and I'm very excited about this. Um, 
uh, it's going to be going on for uh, probably five or six weeks. Um, but we're doing a new series on David. David. I love, I love the story of David. I love this guy. I love David. This man, David, who was a warrior, a worshiper, and sometimes just a wretch of a sinner. He was. But I, I tell you what, the story of David so inspires me. And it's not like in spite of even his shortcomings. It's like that, those just add to how much they inspires me. Because the story of David, uh, it, it, it shows you such insight into a man who's so passionate for God, into a man who's not perfect, right? This isn't the story of an angel who, you know, came down and walked on the earth for a few years. This isn't the story of Jesus. This is the story of a man. This is you and me and uh, all his flaws. But, oh my goodness, it's also the story of the character of a God who loves passionate people. And uh, I, just, I love when we, when we look at that. Uh, what we find in David is something that's rare in human beings. We find this, it's an authentic, it's a raw, naked spirituality in David um, that, that you don't often see in people. It's, it's a rugged spirituality that doesn't just begin and end on Sunday morning, um, it, like, like unfortunately it does for so many people. It's a spirituality that's alive and dynamic, and it shows up in every area of his life. This, this spiritual reality, of, it's dynamic. And, and so over the next few weeks, we're going to take away some, some lessons from this, this warrior poet, this shepherd boy who became king over the golden age of, of Israel. Before we, before we get into David, I want to talk a little bit about this term, spirituality. Spirituality. Because it's a, it's a unique, spirituality is kind of a unique thing. And, you know, if you, if you pay attention... Uh, to, to your culture, that spirituality is kind of a sexy term right now um, in our culture. Surveys tell us, in fact, that, that one of the fastest growing segments uh, in America are the non-religious. It's one of the fastest growing segments. People, and like when they do these surveys, they call themselves uh, nuns, not like Catholic nuns. That's like N-O-N-E, nada, nuns, like no religion. Um, but what's interesting is that when they dig down a little bit and they ask these people, some questions. A huge proportion of these folks uh, cl who classify themselves as, as nuns when they ask, what religion are you? They still say that A, they believe in a god or a higher power. So they're not strictly atheists or agnostics, but they, they believe in a god. And B, they claim often to be spiritual. So, and, and you've probably uh, encountered um, this and, and you you may be here today and that you'd be like yeah that's kind of that kind of describes me a lot of people today uh seem to be spiritual but not religious spiritual but not religious and a lot of people would tell you that and i think what people are really saying when they say that i'm is i'm not really into organized religion i'm not into organized i so i guess i'm into disorganized religion right um which is really just kind of when you think about it, it's the religion of of kind of do whatever you want make it up as you go along which I have to admit sounds awesome. I mean, that sounds awesome. I don't blame anybody. Uh, spirituality for me, it was always one of those words that, you know, wow, it sounded so good. It sounded good. It sounds so otherworldly, kind of freeing, you know, spirituality. I wish I could get into it, but I'm such a like charts and graphs, cerebral nerd. It's just never going to happen for me, right? Um, now, some people, if you talk to about you know, what they have against religion. Some people are scared off from religion because sometimes it feels too touchy-feely. 
And what I mean by that is especially men. And some of these surveys that I was looking at, men, in fact, a high percentage of them say, say, I never go to church because church isn't made for men. It's made for women. Okay? And sometimes that's kind of what church spirituality feels like in America, at least. You know, especially in the evangelical church, it's this sort of lovey-dovey God, and he hugs me a lot. And, you know, we cry during worship songs, and we're always holding hands and skipping and, like, bonding together. And we sing these songs that are obviously written by women, you know, like, Jesus is my boyfriend. And, you know, the guys or men are just sort of sitting there like, okay. Has anybody, guys, have anybody ever kind of felt a little bit like this? It's okay. It's okay. Um, this is a safe place. We, we, can, we can admit this stuff. It's difficult to get past that for some guys. Guys can deal with songs about, like, swords and shields, you know, Lion of Judah, yeah, you know, but we get here and we're singing, you know, I, w- I want to cuddle up with Jesus, and it makes it a little tough. It's tough to be a guy in church today sometimes, right? Um, I was reading even the, uh, the average book in the Christian bookstore, if you go in the Christian bookstore, the target market, they say, the average target is uh, women like aged 30 to 55. What, what they used to call back in the 90s, the soccer mom, you know. Um, and so that's kind of the target market when you go into the books. And so pretty much if you write a book, good idea would be just title it something like Afternoon Tea with Jesus, and it's going to be a bestseller, whatever's in the middle of it. I'm just, that's just a freebie. I'm throwing that out there if you want to get ahead in the Christian book market. So. Anyway, um, but what I love about David, what I love about David's spirituality is David shows us a new understanding of the word spirituality. David's spirituality is raw. It's this rugged, no-frill spirituality. It's masculine. It's it's bloody. It's not real frou-frou, right? And and even it's grand and it's poetic. Even when he gets into the Psalms, it's it's sweaty and it's violent at times. He shows us this authentic spirituality that that really shows us that, you know, real spirituality is is spirituality in its reality. You know, that's what we could think of as spirituality. It's spiritual reality. And for David, it's very real. And believe me, David is not somebody who's perfect, right? Not by any means. You don't want your kid to grow up just like David, okay? Um, Some of the stuff that David did, uh, we were talking about this Thursday night at Bible study, some of the stuff David did, you know, if he did it in Texas, he'd be on death row in Huntsville right now, right? You know, he wouldn't be king of the golden age of Israel, you know, you'd have to go visit him at TDC. Um, but, so what you really want is your kid to grow up like Jesus, right? But David does show us, he shows us not only the character of a man who's passionately in love with God, but his life reveals the character of a God who digs passionate people, the God who, who moves through passionate people. And that's what I see in the life of David. David's spirituality is not a, it's something, it's not something that happens in a, you know, a 10-minute daily devotional during your day. It's not some kind of higher consciousness, you know, that you, you achieve from like a 15-minute, you know, meditative workout or something like that. That's not David's spirituality. It doesn't, it doesn't even happen because, you know, uh, something you, you, you experienced during a youth rally two years ago that you've just been like coasting on ever since. That's not David's spirituality. Here's what it is. If I had to describe it, it's this. It's a spirituality that actually infiltrates all parts of your life. It infiltrates the story of your life. It's a spirituality 
that is sometimes going on and you don't even know it's happening, but God is at work. That's David's spirituality. Guys, if uh, possible, can we get that on the back screen too? That'd be awesome. Um, so what I want to do is, is look at some of the snapshots of David's life over the next few weeks, his story. Now, here's, what, here's something that's kind of cool. In, in the Bible, in First and Second Samuel, those two books, you get a lot of the stories of David. You get kind of the history. You get the accounts of what's going on around him. You know, the battles and the, and the things that, that happened to David. But the Psalms, if you flip ahead to the book of the Psalms, they tell us what he's thinking about God, right? So the Psalms create the, the, the landscape of David's interior life. That's a beautiful thing to read in, in tandem. Uh, you know, this is what it looks like inside of David when he's being pursued, uh, when people want to kill him, when he sins and he falls, this is how he responds. We get to see his heart in the Psalms. And what's great about David, what you do want to mimic about David, and what you, you, you do want your children to, to mimic, is that David has a soft heart to respond to God when God speaks, right? Does David screw up? Oh, yeah. Royally, right? Um, but does he ever get mad and rebel against God when somebody calls him out on it? Never. He doesn't do that. He always comes back crying to God and pursuing his presence. That's what I see in David. So over the next few weeks, you're going to hear the high points of his life, the, some of the low points, the times when David is like way out in left field. And, and just remember, through it all, God is at work. He's forming David's interior life. And we get clues of what's happening in the Psalms. Just like he's at work in you. Did you know that? Did you know God is at work forming your interior life right now? Right now in your life. Um, some of you would sit there and, and say, no, 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 he, he's not at work in me. You don't understand my life. You don't understand the family I had to deal with. Uh, you don't understand the place I got to live, the, the job I have to go to work at every day, the neighbors that drive me crazy. You know, this, you don't understand any of that stuff. But I would just say, hold on, because that stuff, that is the stuff that creates the context in which God works in your life. That stuff is the context that God works in your life. God has a dream for your life. And all that stuff in your life, as Shakespeare said, something like this, that is the stuff dreams are made of. That's the stuff God's dream is made of. Eugene Peterson, who wrote the Message Bible, he once wrote that the everyday conditions of our lives provide the stuff of salvation. Okay, so we'll get into this in a little bit. Now, if you got your Bibles, you can turn with me this morning to 1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel 16. Now, here's a little bit of, of background while you're going there. Israel, at this time, has a king, King Saul. He's the first king of Israel. And Saul seemed like the perfect choice for a king, right? This guy apparently uh, it says that he's very, he's good looking. You know, he was on the top 10 people's most attractive list back then. Um, he's, he's this, you know, he's that guy. It says he's head and taller, uh, head and shoulders taller than everyone else. You know, he's built, he's got the handsome grin, the great hair. This is Saul. 
And over the years, uh, he starts off pretty good, but over the years, Saul starts to listen to his own press. He gets a little puffed up. Um, he's, you know, he's believing all these articles that were written about him, and he gets arrogant, he gets prideful. He starts to think, maybe he doesn't need God's help anymore. And guess what? So God rejects him, right? Now, so we have Saul. Now, at the same time, there's a prophet, a man named Samuel. So you had the king who rules the land, and then you had the prophet who told the king and everybody else what God had to say about things. That was kind of his job. Um, it's sort of, you know, a checks and balances back then, the king and the prophet. And the prophets back then, I have to say, they were kind of the ones with the bad job. Uh, the prophets, they, they were always telling everybody the bad news, it seemed like. Uh, so, so they don't really have a bunch of friends. Um, they don't get invited to those kind of parties. Uh, nobody's real excited when the prophet comes to their house. Nobody's like, hey, the prophet's coming. Get out the chips and dip, right? No, it's more like, dude, you won't guess who's coming up the driveway. What did you do? What did you do? Right? That's, that's this guy. So God tells Samuel, the prophet, he's done with Saul. I'm done with him. He tells him to go to the house of this man, Jesse, Go to his house in Bethlehem, and he's going to make one of his sons king. So let's start reading here in verse 4. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him, and they asked, Do you come in peace? So there it is, the welcome wagon when you're the prophet. Um, it's fun to be Samuel. A bunch of stuttering guys going, Are you here to kill us or what? And, and Samuel replies in verse 5, uh, Yes, in peace. And, and he goes on he consecrates jesse and his sons and then in verse six when they arrived samuel saw eliab now eliab would have been the oldest of the sons of jesse jesse's going to march all his sons out here here's the oldest eliab big tall mature eliab and he thinks surely the lord's anointed stands here before the lord verse seven but the lord said to samuel do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. <clears throat> this happens six more times. Six more sons come through. Surely this is the guy. Surely this is the guy. Finally, in verse 11, uh, until finally Samuel asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Well, they're still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending sheep. Okay, now I don't know how you would feel growing up if somebody important was coming to your house and they said, hey, I'm coming over, I want to meet all your children. And your dad said to you, okay, great. Look, he's coming over to meet all my children. I want you to go out in the field, take care of the sheep, stay out of sight. Because this really important guy is coming over to meet my children. Right, you might feel a little bit of rejection going on right there. Not to mention the job of a shepherd, the job of a shepherd, this is really low on the totem pole. In a, in a family the size of this house of Jesse, that would have been a job for the servants. This is the job you give the, the, the guy who's the lowest ranking human being around. You, you tell him to go watch sheep. Has anybody ever bust tables? I've bust tables, yeah. Um, I got a job busting tables once. It's a job nobody wants, and nobody wants to pay you much for it, right? And uh, I have to admit, I, I, I didn't last long. In, in fact, I didn't last the first night. But anyway, 
true story, but let's keep going. The shepherd, the shepherd is kind of like, it's kind of like today's busboy, right? The, the guy who cleans up the messes left by others, which might explain, uh, Dad, why the ancient word for shepherd is now translated pastor. So I don't know, right? I mean, so you feel a little, feel a little like that sometimes? And Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. And so he sent and had him brought in. And he was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. I don't know why he turned into a leprechaun there. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. Okay, so this is David, obviously. Each, every single one of you, every single one of us in this room, we have, we have a unique set of circumstances that makes your life different than anybody else in this room, right? It, it, it creates the context of your life, all those things. Nobody lives in a vacuum, right? You, you don't wake up in a vacuum and live your life in a bubble that's untouched by the circumstances of your life or your history or your family or your job or anything like that. You live in life, right? You live here. We all have circumstances that combine to, to make us who we are. And what's beautiful about the story of David is that there's several components that we see that really jump out, that create the context in which, you know, this raw, authentic, biblical spirituality shows up in his life and in our life. And so this morning, I want to look at a few of these. Let's look at a few of these. First, first off, geography. As they say, location, 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 right? It's key. It's very important. David shows up on the scene in a very particular place, okay? This is 1000 BC, the Middle East. There's, and there's a reason for that, and that's important. So geography plays a huge part of his spiritual context. Bethlehem is this tiny little village. There's about 3,000 people back then. It's, it's not like he was born uh, and raised in you know, New York or London or something like that by famous parents. He's basically a redneck, right? He's a sheep farmer from this little village in Palestine. And in fact, God is enacting his whole plan of salvation uh, within this 400 square mile corner of the Middle East. But geography becomes really essential as David, he later, when you get into the Psalms and he sings about the caves that God led him in, that God rescued him with. He rescued him through these caves. He hid in those caves um, as he walks in the wilderness. He's experiencing these caves as he's tending the sheep, right? And as he reigns in a, as a king in Jerusalem, it's all happening on the ground. All this is, is, is happening in real life, feet firmly planted in real, unremarkable places, you know, that have a real zip code. That's, that's my point here. It's not happening in a vacuum. Sometimes you and I think of, of spirituality as something otherworldly. Um, you know, oh, my spirituality, no, it's, it doesn't have anything to do with, you know, this apartment that I live in, you know, with the noisy neighbors next door and the stains on the carpet. No, no, no. That, or, you know, or we think spirituality is about, you know, me in a closet somewhere having this, you know, mystical union with the God force. And God says, no, 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 no. Spirituality, it's about the zip code that you live in, the, the real place that you live in. It's about your neighborhood in hot, humid Southeast Texas, right? This Houston freeway culture, that, that forms you, you know, that, that's part of who you are. That's where I've planted you. It's that place. If you go to Guatemala 
And you see the people there, the beautiful people there in the villages. You know, if you go to get to visit them, their spirituality looks very different, right? Because they're not from the woodlands or Conroe or Spring. There's a lot more bright colors and bare feet and straw hats, you know? And it's it's really cool. Their songs are are just way different than than our songs. Um, So geography plays a very particular role in our spirituality. Okay, let's look at another one. Next one, family. Family. Uh, there was a, I heard one time, if, if friends are the family you choose, then family are the friends you can't get rid of. <laughs> I was blessed with a wonderful family, so I can't relate to that. But some of you I know, you, you, you struggle. Um, and David has a really crazy family tree. We already can kind of get an idea of what his dad and brothers think of him. Um, he's the son of Jesse, the youngest of eight. But you remember, David also has this great-grandmother named Ruth who got rescued and redeemed by a man named Boaz. So he's got this in his background. He knows his lineage, right? He knows his heritage. And this is, this is in his background, the outsider that God uses. And, and so genealogy radically shapes David's understanding of life and himself and all. And it's a family tree that doesn't just... Uh, you know, it's not just behind him, but it also moves forward as well as he later becomes a father and a husband, eventually becomes an ancestor of Jesus himself. And some of us would look at this and say, family, well, hmm, okay, but my genealogy isn't really what shapes my spirituality. Uh, you know, it's more of the friends I've made. And I agree, your friends, your community is, is priceless. It's a significant part of what shapes you. But, you know, think about it. If you quit liking a friend, what do you do? You stop talking to them, right? You just don't talk to them anymore. It's simple. You're not stuck sitting next to them at Thanksgiving. Uh, you know, it's just, they're out of the picture, right? Family is a little different. Family is where you come from, and it's pretty hard to shake loose of. You know, you don't go, you know, I don't know, I used to have parents, but I quit talking to them, and now I don't have any. You know, you don't, you don't say that. And some of you may have tension in your family, but it doesn't go away. It doesn't just go away. And you might not get along, but it's not like, yeah, when I was growing up, there were these two other people in my house. One was named, I don't know, something like, like mom or something like that. Um, I can't remember. Um, so the family David is planted in, it becomes part of this sacred context that God uses to form who David is. It's inescapable. Okay, next one. Vocation your job, what you do. Vocation for David is big, and he actually has several of them. You know, we we know he's a shepherd. He turns out to be a warrior. He runs errands at one point. He's a musician. Uh, He's ultimately king. So it kind of runs the gamut. And all those vocations, especially uh, this passage as shepherd, they're central to how God is forming David. He's forming him a certain way. David shepherds which is a low-end job. You know, nobody back then was trying to get like a master's degree in shepherding. It just didn't, didn't happen. But it's that context that really radically prepares David for all that he's gonna do. And at the same time, he's learning as he's sitting there with these sheep, he's learning to meditate on the scriptures and that he loves so much. He says several times in the word how much he loves the law of God. And he, he gets to... Th- 
really contemplate the nature of God. And he's learning how to care and protect and defend the defenseless, right? And he's learning to pray and sing and make music. He's learning to live in the wild, right? To live off the land with all its dangers and its beauty. It's, it's in this dangerous context that he learns to trust God, that he can fight bravely and that he learns to appreciate peace. It's in this context of his vocation. And so when the time comes, yeah, he fights Goliath because he's already fought a lion. He's already fought a bear in the field. He'll hide from Saul and he'll discover these caves that make up the landscape. And it's all happening while he's doing this nowhere job of tending the flock. But it's significant for him, right? Because he's going to become a man who feeds and guides and leads and protects a nation. He's really going to keep being a shepherd for the rest of his life, right? And God says, yeah, I'm doing it through these early days of your vocation. God's working through that. And I think some of us, when we, when we think about our vocation, what we, what we go to work at every day, you know, tragically, we've sort of separated these days the, the sacred from the secular in our minds. So there's, you know, there's church work and then there's carnal work. Uh, and we think, well, I'm not like a pastor or whatever. I guess if I, you know, held a really spiritual job, then maybe my life would mean something. But in actuality, your vocations have a sacredness to them. The Bible says this. And your job is, your job is not some realm that like God is not allowed to show up at until you clock out, right? He's there 24-7. So vocation becomes part of the context in which God is forming you. Um, you know, whether that's going to school right now, if you're in college, or, you know, whether it's working at a job, or whether it's raising kids, you know, you might be thinking, this doesn't seem real sacred right now, packing a lunch and driving these kids to school. But what's sacred is that that's the place where your heart is being shaped. That's the place you're at. That's where your heart's being shaped. That's where your story is being written. And, and God is the playwright. He's a good writer. You got to trust him, right? I've talked to so many people who have this attitude like, I'm just wasting my life right now as a fill in the blank, whatever it is. I can't be spiritual because I'm just spending my whole time, you know, making sandwiches. I'm driving kids to school. I'm answering a phone or I sit in a class or, and, you know, and truthfully, that's kind of a form of blasphemy because God is busy right now forming you. He's busy right now forming you, forming you into the image of his son. And I know that work can get stressful. I know the things out there that you have to do, they get stressful. But guess what? God is there. He's forming you. And, and the fault isn't God's. The fault is usually ours for forgetting that God is right here with me in this and that he is busy working on me right now. He hasn't taken a break. He hasn't said, well, I see you're busy. I'm gonna come back to you when you're done. No, he's right there. He wants to be right there in it, in it, right there forming you into the image of his son through the context of your vocation right now. And God has called every single person in this room, as Mr. John was saying earlier, he's called you to be people of influence. He's called you to that. In the, in the context that you're, you're placed, be people of influence, which includes your job. And every single one of us, we work and live and play in a mission field. We do. All of us work in a mission field. It's the place that God is... is wanting to touch other people through you, but he's also shaping you. That's what's happening. He's teaching you. He's testing you. He's growing in you perseverance and patience 
He's doing that. I really believe he is. So we have to re-understand work as spiritual. It is spiritual. It's sacred. And it's redemptive. You say, well, you don't understand my job. And, and I, hey, I get it. I get it. All of us can, can gripe about our jobs. You know, it's part of the curse, right? Blame Adam. Genesis 3, you know, God said, you know, hey, work's going to blow. I, this, this is the way it is. And he was right. You hear medical doctors say, you know, stress is really bad for you. And of course we're stressed. Of course we are, because God created us to be these like naked gardeners in Eden, right? And we got we to gotta go to work and save the world and bust tables at the same time. That's stressful. Um, but your vocation, it's just one of the contexts in which God is redeeming and saving and shaping you. So don't reject that, okay? Here we go. Next one. Moving right along. Prayer life. We look at David's prayer life. What we see blooming in his life is this beautiful place of prayer. And it's not prayer like you and I maybe often think of it. He's not just going, God, do this for me. Give me this and that. You know, amen. God, uh, David sees prayer. It seems like it's almost a way of answering God when you look at his prayers. And it's also out of the other context of his life, his work, his family, his geography, that his prayers are written. That's why his prayers look different than your prayers, right? Because you're not a shepherd in 1000 BC, right? So his prayers are gonna look different because he's praying in context, in the context of his life. Listen here to how he connects his vocation with prayer. Let's see. Uh, in, in Psalm 23, he says, The Lord is my what? I shall not be in want. See, we read this today. We read this today. And we think, oh, that's such a beautiful romantic metaphor, right? But it's not. Remember, this is the busboy of society. A shepherd isn't some glamorous thing. To David, he's saying the Lord is like the one who cleans up my mess, the one who sustains me when I'm clueless. When I have no idea what to do, God is there, the patient shepherd. Amen. Let's see. Where are we going? Whoops, whoops. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. These are things he has seen. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So David, let's take a lesson from him. He uses his imagination when he prays, doesn't he? I mean, how often do we kind of pray lazy? I, I'm so guilty of just lazy prayers all the time. But he uses his imagination. He, he can look at his vocation, and he actually imagines God doing what he does. Think about that. He sees God in his work. Prayer isn't just this, this one way, do this, do this, checking off a grocery list for God. And, and so I would encourage you to do that. Try that this week. Try that. Write your own psalm to God this week. And it'll require your imagination. God's worth it. Think about your vocation and say, the Lord is my whatever. Fill in the blank there, right? He's, he's like a mother, he let the task show up and, you know, ask yourself, how is God like this? How is he like a waiter? How is, how is God like a receptionist? You know, whatever it is. How is he a teacher? 
In what ways is God like an accountant, a lawyer, a plumber? How is God like this that I'm doing? What am I learning about the character of God when I do my job? And let your imagination stew on that. I'm telling you, it'll, it'll make your prayer life blossom in a way that maybe it hasn't before. That's what David's doing. He's tending sheep, but he's seeing God. You understand? And his prayers reflect this. Okay, the last thing I want to look at that shapes David's context is God. God is at work in his story. God is at work. He's at work in the story before David even knows he's at work. Remember, David is out in the field tending sheep, which is not really the, you know, fast track to a successful career. So he may feel a little stuck. And God's already telling Samuel before that, hey, I got a king, and he's going to be a king after my heart. God's already saying that. David didn't know that, right? And so as we come into this story, we see David is out in the fields, but God is at work. David's out in the fields, but God is at work. And much of the time in our life, in your job, whatever, in your family, you don't see God's hand front and center in your life because he's orchestrating. He's moving. He's creating. He's writing. He's writing your story. And the truth is he is deeply involved in your life. Some of you, you feel like you're full of all these dreams, but life, how many of you feel like life just stalled somewhere? You had these passions and dreams and life seems to have stalled. You want to be in the action and it feels like you are just stuck out in the field. The truth is that God is at work in your life. He has not forgotten about you. He's at work in you. I'm not saying all the garbage that we go through is God's will. He, does, he doesn't want pain and torture on you, even when you step away from his will. But we have to realize that sometimes we feel like we're floundering and what God is doing is preparing the time and the place for your moment. He's preparing it for your moment on stage, right? For that moment when he says, okay, now get David out of the field. We're not sitting down until he gets here. He's preparing you. And where do you want to be when that call comes? You want to be in the field. You want to be where you're supposed to be. Verse 13. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. And that right there becomes David's identity. He's got a family that doesn't think much of him, maybe. He's got his geography. He's from a nowhere town, got a nowhere job. But the anointing of God creates David's true identity. The anointing creates your identity. And it's not despite those other circumstances in his life that God picks him. No, God redeems and uses those other elements in his life. So, so we really do think, often we think that our spiritual life would go so much better if we could just lose the baggage, right? If we didn't have all these things that were part of our story. We look at that whole thing and we think, if I could just escape that, if I could just escape where I live, escape my job, escape my family, if that's the, you know, as if that's the problem, if I could just escape all that, then I could recreate the, the spiritual identity, how I want it to look. But raw, authentic, 
true spirituality says all of those things create the unique, personal, and sacred context of your life. All those things are important. And God is in the midst of this messy life, and he calls you his child. And that's your identity, because that's what he's called you. God is shaping your life as you surrender yourself to him. And I can't tell you why, why bad things happened to you and why bad families exist or why you don't get everything you want. But I do know that God is God and that God is good. Amen? I know that. He's all good. And I know that if we're running toward him and not away from him, then he really is the one who is, who's writing your story. And he's going to redeem the context of your life. He's going to use it all. Now, having said that, one caveat. If you're running away from God, then sadly, he's not the one writing your story at that moment. Then when bad things happen to us, they really don't have a point when you're running from God. They seem like dead ends because they really are dead ends. You ever turn down an alley and realize there's no outlet here? You get to the end, it's a dead end. What do you gotta do? You gotta turn around. That's all you gotta do is turn around, go back to where you made the wrong turn. That's all, the, that's all repent means, to turn. Go back to where you went off track and start fresh because God's waiting for you. He's got the story being written. The whole point of Jesus coming was so God could bring you in and say, here, I have placed you, my child. Now let me form you into the image of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, my friends, as a, as a benediction, as you learn to embrace rather than escape the, the story that he's written you into, may you become more fully fulfilled, more truly spiritual children of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you, Lord. We thank you. You are the great shepherd, Lord. We thank you that you are the kind of shepherd that will leave the 99 and go find the one and bring us back into the fold, Father. We thank you for your, for your infinite patience, your infinite love, your grace, Father, your mercy. We praise you, Lord, and we depend on that. We're desperate for it, Lord. And we thank you that whatever's going on in our life, whatever has going on, wherever we've come from, the background we came from, the struggles that we had to overcome, that we're still overcoming, Lord, I thank you, Lord, that you're redeeming those things. You redeem all things in our life for your good, that all things come together for the good of those who love you, Lord. And I thank you, Father, that you are doing that. You're writing our story. You're writing our story both as individuals in this church and as a community, as a community of believers here at Generations. Father, I thank you for where you're taking us. I thank you for every person here this morning who came in here just wrung out, who came in here desperate, who came in here thinking, I'm kind of done. I thank you, Lord, that you give us a fresh fire in our bellies, Lord, that you're filling our spirits with peace. Your Holy Spirit is filling this place, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that you're, you're teaching us how to recognize you in all the things in our life and all the things that happen. Open our eyes to see you moving in those areas we didn't realize you were there all along. I praise you, Lord, and I love you so much. Thank you for your mercy. I'm desperate for it, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.
I want to thank you guys, and uh, I'm going to ask our prayer partners to come forward right now.